Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Welcome to this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. We are joined today by someone who I've been following for quite some time. Uh, he is a hockey fan, so I had to represent with my Ron Francis Pittsburgh Penguin jersey. Uh, and something a lot of people didn't know, I played goalie for a number of years, which is probably why oh, yes. FAI. I tried Patrick Waugh butterfly style, epic fail. <laughs> uh, more of a, it's, a tough one. it's a tough one for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, more of a Chris Osgood kind of stand-up goalie. Uh, another great one as well. Um, but Dean's here joining us. Uh, he has a, as you can see on his background, if you're watching at home on YouTube, he has a plethora of knowledge and it's not just certificates on the wall. He has been presenting for almost a decade, I think now. Is that right? Um, probably about 12 years, but yeah, pretty close to that. Yeah, and he's a fantastic uh, wealth of knowledge. So we're very fortunate today uh, to welcome Dean Somerset from Edmonton. Thank you so much for coming on today, Dean. My pleasure, man. Glad for, uh, we were able to actually make this connect. It's been a little bit of a scheduling nightmare with time change and uh, international time zones, but we made it work. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? We, we take it for granted. I remember when FaceTime came out and everybody's like, whoa, holy cow, I can actually see you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty cool how small the world becomes with technology. Yes. Um, and speaking of which, uh, there's a number of products that, you've, uh, that I've learned from and that you've put out, most recently the Complete Trainer's Toolbox, uh, before that, the complete hip and shoulder blueprint, which you and Tony are now doing a, a part two, or not part two, it's an update, I guess, uh, that you're currently presenting on and making. Um, but what a lot of people don't know about you is that, one, your wife is a cyclist, and two, you also train a number of cyclists and paracyclists uh, up there in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got uh, a lot of inroads with my wife's team um, because she does a lot of track cycling right now, as well as road cycling. I, I designed her strength training program, but then also get a chance to meet and talk with the athletes and coaches on a lot of the programs that she works with from junior developmental to national to world level athletes. And uh, I've been able to form some really good inroads and relationships in that group. So it's been a really neat process to be able to see how a lot of those athletes develop before they used to just walk past the weight room because you don't want to get big and bulky, but now they're getting to the stage where they're like, okay, well, if I do the right kind of weight training, I get really smoking fast and I don't get big and bulky. So you maintain that watt to power output, or sorry, watt to body weight ratio. And it means that you just get stronger on the bike, which is a, a really cool thing to see a person's year over year performance improvement, especially when they start adding in quality weight training. And that's something that I think we're finally starting to see as a shift in the world of uh, cycling and triathlon. And I, I blame triathlon for this. Triathlon and cyclocross is where I think weight training came in. But uh, you made note right up front that now you're seeing that shift of, oh, I can actually use strength training to help me gain more power on the bike, watts per kilo. It's not the, the absolute, it's the relative power. What have you seen as far as an evolution in the athlete's mindset that you work with there? The biggest evolution I've seen is that people can see the numbers change over time. So when it comes to a spe specifically a cyclist, it's all about performance outcomes and about metrics. So if you notice that threshold power goes up, VO2 goes up, 
um, RPMs go up, all those factors go up that go into the metrics of what makes a cyclist perform. That has a lot of saliency to it and makes athletes actually want to buy into it. So rather than it just being, well, your squat went up, but your threshold power didn't, that doesn't make them actually want to go in and spend the time in the gym because there's no direct correlation or causation to their performance in cycling. But if I'm able to show an athlete, here, you started at this much weight for your squat, you moved up to this much, you're able to do this many reps, you're able to maintain power output, and as a result of our training, your threshold power went up by 10%. That has a direct carryover to their willingness to buy into the thought process and be able to say, this works, let's do more of it. I'm curious to hear about uh, exactly how you're loading the squats because I, I, with Dr. McGill, who we had uh, before that uh, folks can listen to those uh, one or two episodes, we spoke about a belt squat. Uh, I'm a favorite of a front squat or a goblet squat before we ever touch a, a back squat, even though it does work the erector spinae and the extensor muscles. Where do yeah. you like to start your athletes and do you have a specific squat method that you really like? Well, for most athletes, uh, I try to get a front squat because it's more readily available than a belt squat. I mean, if you have access to a belt squat machine, great. And uh, with the organization I'm hoping to consult with, I'm going to try to get them set up with a belt squat machine in the clubhouse. But uh, a front squat is a little bit more specific to what a cyclist can go through, primarily because it's anterior loading versus posterior loading. Shoulder range of motion for cyclists usually isn't that great to be able to grab a bar on the back of the shoulders. So... It's a little bit more of a, a position specific to cycling itself. A safety squat bar would be even better, depending on whether they have access to one, but a front squat is usually a universal way that we can load the squat. Um, another big part is that the range of motion is going to be very independent to the individual. I don't train people to powerlifting depth. I train them to their anatomical depth, which I'm sure Miguel was talking about as well. Like Everybody has a bit of a different squat. I'm working with one guy right now who's um, a track cyclist who was a speed skater, amazing, amazing squat position, amazing squat depth. And the person who's right next to him in terms of where we train and how we set up, he's about four inches taller, but can't squat anywhere near as low as that guy. So for him, we train to his limits. Two athletes in the same program, same age group, slightly different anthropometrics. We train them differently based on their abilities. Let's get into that a little bit more. And, and I just want to make clear for our listening audience, uh, some people have deemed uh, Tony the shoulder guy and you the hip guy, but you're well beyond that. And I think uh, I'd like to share that and let people know, you know, as fitness professionals, people like to go, oh, you're the, you're the deadlift guy or you're the, the hip guy, but there's so, so much more to that. Uh, let's talk more about that, that range of motion because now we're seeing a bicycling magazine. Uh, I will call them out on it here in the end of uh, middle of March posted a professional mountain bikers workout on the Indo board. And I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm still on the borderline of, do I write the editors and say, you need to put in like, this is an advanced workout for the mm -hmm. average cyclist out there. Where should they be thinking about their squat? What are the major considerations? You know, they're seeing professional mountain bikers do Indo board squats. And here you're talking about, you know, one guy's got great squat depth and the other is not where near that. How do the listeners determine where to start and how to do it properly? Yeah, and I think with uh, a lot of those articles on this professional athlete doing their workout, it misses a lot of necessary context. I mean, you can go back in time to read like Flex Magazine or Muscle Mag and look at what a pro Olympia bodybuilder was doing for their chest leading into their 15th Olympia. And then as a first time weight trainer say, well, I'm going to do that workout and get jacked. No, I mean, that's specific for that athlete at that point in time in their career and also tailored to their abilities. What we don't know about that mountain biker is the context behind why are they doing an indoor board workout. 
or is that article sponsored by Indoor Board? Therefore, they have to actually say, well, we're going to use this board, even though he may or may not use that workout at all in his own training. So the context behind it matters as much as anything else. For a beginner, the best place to begin is at the beginning, going through the basics. Learn how to do a squat, learn how to do a deadlift, learn how to do a clean. If you can do that kind of stuff, you're already ahead of 90% of other cyclists out there. So start with the basics, learn how to get really good body control over compound movements, and then gradually add loading as you can tolerate. You're not training to be a power lifter or an Olympic lifter, but you're using power lifting and Olympic lifting techniques to augment cycling performance. And you mentioned there uh, the clean as well. And I, I would assume that's like a hang clean or a power clean as opposed to a clean off of uh, the floor, or you'd have them off the racks uh, about knee. It depends on the individual. Like some can go right off the floor with no problem and they can get their back into a really good setup. Others, they need to go off of a block pull and others need to go with a hang pull. I'll usually start them in a hang pull because it's a little bit less aggressive of a positioning. They can get their back locked in. They can do it unloaded. They can do it loaded. But most of the time, it'll be a hang pull to a block pull to a floor pull and maybe back to a block pull depending on the individual. But it's not something where it's hard and fast. Day one, you do it this way. Day two, you do it this way. Day three, you do it that way. It's more of, let me look at you and see what you're doing. Are you getting the benefit of the exercise based on what we're trying to do? And if so, great. If not, or you can't line up in a positioning for it, let's adjust the exercise. So that's something that uh, Usher here had uh, experienced uh, as well when he was with us for the basketball camp last year and the year before, is it, it depends. It's really so athlete-specific. Uh, I'd really like to, to hear, and for the listeners to hear, what type of uh, a process do you have to help the individual determine? What does it look like when they come in and they're first starting with you uh, to help you understand what their body awareness is, what their anatomy and, and uh, anatomical limitations are, and how, how you find that right starting point for them? Well, we'll go through a series of assessments. So first, it'll be just a medical questionnaire. Do you have injuries, any medical conditions, anything that would make me think, okay, here's a red flag to doing these certain exercises or positions. Then we'll go through a passive range of motion test on a table where I see how move, movable or what range of motion your hips can go through. An active assessment where we see can they generate tension and pull into those same ranges of motion. Then we get them up and actually doing stuff. So can you squat? Can you deadlift? Can you do a hand clean? or a power clean, or maybe a kettlebell swing, or a single leg balance, all the stuff I would have them do in a training session. And then what does that look like? Does it look like we need to seriously regress before we start loading that up? Does it look like you're ready to go and you can handle whatever I want to throw at you? Or is it something where maybe it's creating pain or problems or something along the way that we got to dig deeper into? For most athletes, especially cyclists, because they're non-contact, for the most of the time, unless they catch like weird roads and they start falling and breaking collarbones and stuff like that, um, they should not have contact-based injuries unless they carry that in from a previous sport, but crashes dictate different things happen. So with a lot of track cyclists, they might have crashed a few times, get gnarly collarbone injuries or separated shoulders, or maybe they have really bad hip contusions or something like that. So we got to look at what kind of role that plays in their ability to move and do stuff. But at the end of the day, it comes down to saying, okay, well, what do you do? What does your range of motion look like? And then how well do you control that and do stuff with it? From there, it's designing the training program around the person and what their goal set is. So that sounds pretty much like you're looking at them. Uh, they may come in as a small group, it sounds like, three to four at a time at the beginning. Is that about right? Usually I'll assess one-on-one and then uh, go through a one-on-one training program with them until they get at least comfortable with what I'm trying to get them to do as far as like squat technique, deadlift technique. And then they can start going into small groups of two to four or five 
but uh, it depends on their programming. It also depends on what their calendar looks like too. So if their training calendar has them going through uh, junior nationals in Canada happens in March. So the juniors actually just went through their nationals. Master and world athletes go through their nationals in September for some reason. I don't know why, but that's just how the track cycling is set up in Canada. So if I'm working with a junior athlete from December to March, their training calendar is entirely different than a master's athlete from December to March. So in December, those junior athletes are actually in season trying to prepare for nationals, whereas the master's athletes are completely off-season. So their mileage and their intensities are entirely different. We can focus differently on what we do in the gym just based on the fact that it's a different point of their training calendar. So if I had a basketball player and it was like the middle of their off-season, we could hammer strength training a lot more than if it was just before playoffs, if that analogy makes sense. So if we're training somebody for performance in the gym, they have to be able to not have that performance in the gym take away from performance on the bike. So I can make them more sore in the gym and have them recover for one or two extra days if the time frame to competition is considerably longer away than somebody who's got to compete tomorrow or next week or next month. So it sounds like uh, there's quite a big difference for you as well with the junior uh, athletes and how you're training them. So let's kind of go down that road before we get into endurance cyclist or road cyclist versus track. What does the program look like? Do you have a specific age where you prefer to have the junior athletes come in and learn specific movements or start weighting them? Um, Not a specific age. Uh, It just depends on who the athlete is and what they want to get out of it. So if they're like a 13-year-old wanting to get set up on a specific strength training program, I probably wouldn't give them anything too specific. I would say, well, let's get you to play a couple of different sports. Let's get you to learn body awareness. Maybe enroll in something like gymnastics, where you can learn body awareness, positioning, technique, all that kind of stuff. If you really want to come into the gym and you're really gung-ho about learning basic technique, cool. Yeah, we can start doing some basic technique stuff. But again, I'm not going to look at making you into a weight trainer. I'm going to get you to learn basic technique. If you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you're looking at making a run for the national team, okay, well, we'll use the strength training to augment what you do on the bike. If you're 40, 45, 50 years old and you're looking to stay competitive as a master's athlete, great. Now let's see if we can make sure that you have good mileage on your joints and a good way to actually move and take advantage of the training you're doing and maybe do some recovery work or mobilize joints that haven't been mobilized in 20 years. I mean, most cyclists are really good at sagittal plane motion, but internal and external rotation, no bueno, man. We got to get that actually moving. And if you're in your 40s and you haven't moved your hip through rotation since you were in your 20s, that's probably something we should look at. If you're in your 20s, mobility is way less of a concern, but we're still going to touch on it. Get them to do train based on what they're looking to do and also where they are in the training calendar and age span too. So what about uh, breathing training? That's kind of been the cutting edge for strength and conditioning, I guess you could say, for the last year or two, uh, and a big push maybe, maybe not the cutting edge. What, what about breathing technique and teaching, especially the master's athletes and the junior's athletes, like getting at both ends of the spectrum, where early on and a little bit later, so we're getting the nutation and connutation, which is going to really help with that, that hip and uh, head position quite a bit. Is that something you weave into your programs a bit? Absolutely. I mean, it's a fundamental component to how a person moves and what they do. And especially as an endurance athlete, understanding the role of breathing as a mobility tool and as a stabilization tool makes a huge difference in a person's tidal volume. So if a person does not have the rib or the thoracic spine motion to be able to inhale deeply, they're limiting how much air they can get per breath, which makes a big difference in endurance cycling and endurance activities. 
So I get them to understand that breathing isn't just about, oh, well, here we're doing yoga to try to relax. It's we're using this as a mobility pump and a mobility primer to try to expand your lung volume, your lung capacity, while also allowing you to do stuff that you're trying to do. Create pressure, create stability, create stiffness, and then also increase oxygen delivery into the working tissues. But a lot of that comes down to, like you were saying, it's kind of cutting edge, but it's kind of one of those things that I think has just been forgotten. It's like, oh yeah, I know how to breathe. Great, let's make you breathe better. I mean, if you're coming into the gym and you don't know how to breathe, you're dead. So I'm not going to worry about those people. It's like, all right, you're breathing. Let's make sure that you're breathing to what your mechanical advantages actually should be. So if you have somebody who cannot get full thoracic expansion, they're limiting tidal volume, which is going to affect their performance on the bike because now they're, they're breathing through a smaller bag of air and it's going to take them more breaths to transfer more oxygen for in money, which makes them have to work harder, which means they're less efficient. If I can get a client taking in an extra 0.2 liters of air per breath, that's going to have an impact on their endurance performance. I'm, I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit with, with this. I have a couple professional riders, and you know how, how heavily they weight that VO2 max test, the laboratory one. Like Once you have that number, that's pretty much it. Like, and, and hopefully we can change that from the bottom up. What, what are your suggestions to riders who are getting to that point where they're getting ready to go pro? Um, they know that in some point in the next year or two, they're going to have to have that VO2 max lab test, which really does, you know, it's kind of like the combine for the NFL. Even though we, we know it doesn't really determine performance, mm -hmm. uh, it's still relied upon. What would be one or two things you would suggest those individuals as far as breathing exercises? Um, a lot of them come down to just making sure they can move what is required to move when they're breathing. So rib expansion, thoracic extension, diaphragmatic depression, all those things are going to inflate the bag of the lung into a bigger size. So if the person's able to do all of that kind of stuff, great. If they can't move one or more of the segments, that's when you have to start doing specific mobilization drills to be able to actually access that range of motion. For the most part, if a person can breathe well, great, we're off to the races. And if they can't, or if there's something that's restricting their ability to inhale and take in a full breath of air, that's where we have to start trying to work at it. They should have, if they're getting ready to turn pro, they should have already gone through VO2 tests. It's not something that should be new or only exploded or explored when they're getting into masters. That should be something that if they're in junior developmental, if they're in national developmental, if they're in any developmental phase, they'll probably have experience with VO2 tests, or they'll have done like FTP testing or something like that along the way. So. Testing shouldn't be something that's new. That should all just be stuff that they've already got lots of experience with, lots of data points on, and then we can just work on seeing if we can massage those data points to get them better. And that's kind of the, the answer I was hoping for because it, it, it just drives home like you have to start young. So if you're 20, 21, and you're getting into racing as a collegiate athlete maybe in the U.S. or Canada, it's a golden opportunity to really learn. And uh, I'm curious for you to share with us here, how do you interlace the breathing exercises? You know, I put them at the beginning of my dynamic warm-up, try and use it as a buffer between what's going on outside of the gym and before your on-bike sessions. Where do you like to interlace these into your programming to help your athletes? Well, the breathing element is a technique of every exercise that we do in the gym. So it's not something where I'm saying, well, now we're going to do breathing for this five minutes, but for the next 50 minutes, we're not. It's, okay, we're going to interlace this breathing work in everything you do for your squats. There's a method of how you breathe. For your deadlift, there's a method of how you breathe. For doing any of your pistol squats or hand cleans, there's a method of how you breathe to get maximum performance out of those exercises. So 
So it's not something where I'm just saying, oh, well, I just want you to breathe for five minutes here and then it's done. We're going to adjust your breathing mechanism all the way through the work. So if I have a client doing a three rep set of fairly heavy back squats or front squats, the way they breathe is going to be very different compared to their eight to 10 rep set. Or if we're doing power endurance work with their squats and they're trying to maintain a threshold of 0.6 meters per second at a given load, rep one to rep 10 to rep 15 are going to be very different. So how do they engage their breathing muscles and their breathing center to actually get through all of the reps that they have to do before their velocity starts to drop? So it's not something where it's just like, okay, well, we're only going to touch on in the warm-up. It's I have a way that I want you to breathe to get the best mechanical advantage out of the exercise. I want you to be able to breathe that way from start to finish. So we might not ramp people up for heavy testing until about four to six months into their training program just because I want to make sure that technically they can control the lift. They know how to bail if they get stuck or if they get into a problem. They can breathe. They have worked on the mobility and drilled it enough so that they feel comfortable going into a max testing scenario. And all the boxes have been checked as far as, okay, we're in the best way to test what we're actually testing. But in that four to six months time frame, we're working on breathing, we're working on technique, range of motion, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I would say that breathing is part of every rep that we do. Love it, man. Absolutely amazing. And that's, that's the thing that's so important. I, I think that I have two athletes in particular I'm working with now. I, I really want them to go back and listen to that answer again, because we start off with the breathing to help you become aware of it, get you movement, especially through the mid back. I mean, a lot of athletes, you know, breathe into your back. Well, I don't have lungs in my back. Well, actually, technically you do. The lungs go all the way back there. And those ribs, uh, the rib, um, the ribs have to move at those, at those joints. And a lot of cyclists don't have that. So let's take a step back and think about the average cyclist and triathlete who's out there listening and doesn't have a strength coach or is just following something offline. What's something that they can easily do to help them learn uh, better breathing patterns? And the best way is to just become aware of what happens when you breathe. So you can just sit here right now and do a couple of really deep inhales and see how much air you can suck in for a breath and think about what feels like it's moving and what feels like it's not. Like when you breathe in, do your ribs expand and raise up? Does your mid-back expand and thicken up? Do you get laterally wider to your ribs? Does your diaphragm press down and push your stomach out? If all of that kind of stuff is happening, great. You're probably using as much air as you can. Do you feel like you have a stuck segment that just wants to move but doesn't? Or do you feel like you're not moving from a segment at all and it's just not working the way you want it to? Okay, being able to address that in uh, just a static, or sorry, a rested state is probably going to become important, especially because as you get into doing hard intervals, you're probably going to start developing some side stitches or neck stitches or something telling you that you're overworking one or more of your breathing muscles, and then you have to change your approach at that point. With a lot of the runners that I work with, I'll ask them, you know, do you get stitches when you run? Do you get like uh, oblique cramping or like a tight neck or a jaw or shoulder problems or something like that? And that could be an indicator that you're using those centers more than what they should be working on. And other stuff just isn't picking up the slack as a result. So if we can get a client going from having constant side stitches every time they do hard work to not having side stitches, for one, they'll work harder and have a better performance at the end of the day, but also will be improving oxygen transport, which allows them to work harder going forward. So let's take that in and parlay that into shoulder position because we've seen, and I'm sure you've seen a number of up and coming junior athletes who they've never been really coached on bike position before. They're coming to you for the strength training and, and trying to get better on the bike. Let's mm -hmm. talk about how that neck and shoulder position can drastically affect your ability to inhale, exhale, and, and just using less energy on the bike when you, you, you get it in a better uh, position. 
Yeah, and part of that comes down to the trade-off between optimal positioning for aerodynamics and biomechanical alignment. Um, one of the bike shop owners in town at Pedalhead Roadworks, he has uh, one of, I think it's called the Da Vinci Bike Fit Machine. So really fairly high tech. He's got all the certifications in the world. He does all of his stuff. And if anyone has bike fit issues, I'll send them to him because he's got all of the calibrated computers and telemetry to be able to say, okay, this is your fit for performance outcomes and for everything you need. And when it comes to stuff like aerodynamics and your nine to three pedal stroke or your 12 to six pedal stroke, he can tell you where you get the best advantage as far as like shoulder positioning, bar stem positioning, uh, seat height, saddle handle, all that kind of stuff. He breaks it right down. I don't touch on any of that. So yeah, for most of the time when the, the cyclist is in the cycling position, depending on what position they're in, whether they're in their arrow, their pursuit, uh, their road on the hoods or on the drops, it's going to change what happens with their shoulders. It's, you, you can't just have one position all the time that's anatomically perfect and aerodynamically perfect. It's just not going to happen. So then it comes down to more, can we manage the stress that the body's under during those positions? And then can we manage it afterwards for recovery? So just training shoulder range of motion drills. Can we get them out of that constantly flexed position, work on some thoracic extension, some thoracic rotation? Can they move their shoulder blade? If they can move their shoulder blade, that's going to be a big challenge for a lot of cyclists because how often do cyclists have to move their shoulder blade? Never. But it's one of the most mobile regions of the body. So we get them to actually do that kind of stuff decrease some of the resting tension on that area, maybe do some foam rolling or lacrosse ball work, set them up with some soft tissue management, and then get them doing basic mobility drills. And do that, and a lot of shoulder and neck stuff seems to be manageable for a lot of athletes. So I'd actually kind of argue a little bit with, uh, you know, how often does a cyclist have to move their shoulder? I think it should be common, you know, uh, having to reach into their back pocket for food, uh, down to the handlebars, uh, very few cyclists that are recreational or even racers uh, actually go out and practice the bike handling skills. And what I see with a lot of our skills clinics is they can't separate that rib cage and, and shoulder, which means bumping and turning are way harder. And they just don't have that confidence, which means they're a danger out on the road to other riders when they're in close quarters, which as we know, you know, any type of tense is going to cause uh, greater perturbations in how they're, they're riding. But uh, I'm wondering also about, you know, I've seen a couple cases where the lat was so turned on, it was affecting the side expansion of the ribs and they just weren't able to breathe. And you mentioned earlier about the side stitches and it seems to be more common with triathletes where they're planking and I put that in air quotes because really they're just hanging off the psoas. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're not actually planking and the shoulder just locks down and now their swim is starting to cause a C joint pain. So it's just kind of like that, that trickle down. Um, are there certain warning signs or, or red flags that you would suggest that the listeners can easily assess at home as to, hey, this is, a, this is going to be a problem. It might not feel like it right now, but it will be soon. Yeah, and I think you nailed a couple of them on the head, like AC joint pain when you're swimming, side stitches when you're doing any kind of intervals, if you get neck cramping or whatnot, or you feel like you're not taking as big of a breath as you could, or anything like that can be an indicator that, okay, well, maybe I should see if there's a way that I can improve this or get it better especially if it's something that does feel like it directly affects your performance. So with a lot of cycling, if you are in those handlebar positions, yeah, you might have to go back to grab something out of your back pocket, but because you're forward flex, the internal rotation range of motion isn't as great as if you're vertical and trying to reach that same position. Depending on what positions are feeling problematic, that might be something where you say, you know what, this feels like it's more of a problem than it should be. I should go get it checked up. 
And you can be an incredibly mobile individual while doing a cycling or triathlon type sport if you have the ability to actually just use the range of motion you currently have. When you stop using it, it's going to start reducing out on its own and you're going to get just to the favorable point of only having what you use consistently. So like I was saying earlier, a lot of cyclists don't like using rotation with their hips. A lot of cyclists don't like using rotation with their shoulders either because they don't really have to. I mean, for swimming, it's different because now you got to get into that front crawl mechanism. And if you're a runner or a cyclist, doing that as only a quarter of your actual training without getting a good mobility warm-up or without restoring range of motion to the rib cage or to the shoulder, that plays a role. So just making sure that you're aware of some of the soft signs like AC joint pain, rib pain, side stitches, any other kind of stuff that would limit performance. So let's kind of take that, and, and you mentioned the hips. We'll start working our way down the hips. Uh, we heard Dr. McGill the last week or two. Let's talk about spine range of motion and the loss that occurs there. And why is it that track cyclists tend to have better flexion extension as opposed to a road cyclist? You know, what is it? Is it a mentality thing? Is it the track cyclists tend to understand better the importance of having, you know, it's kind of like baseball players. They have more internal rotations, uh, so they lose some of that external, or more external rotation. They lose some of the internal rotation. But track cyclists seem to, to get it, if you will. What is it that, that causes them to have that connection and understanding of, hey, this extension is important? I think part of it comes down to what they do for their training that's different from a road cyclist. I mean, you look at how, what position a road cyclist spends their time in compared to a track cyclist. Yeah, it's both on the bike and in a, a relatively flexed position. But how much time does a road cyclist spend in that relative to a track cyclist? So for a track cyclist, they may only be in that flexed posture for maybe a half hour to an hour based on the intervals that they're working on or the intensities that they're working on, including warm-ups and cool-down. Whereas a road cyclist might spend four hours in that position. Now, another component of it is what do they do in their training outside of the bike specifically? So for a track cyclist, they'll be doing a lot more gym-based time, doing squats, deadlifts, uh, cleans, very extension-based explosive type movements. Whereas a road cyclist would spend considerably less time doing those activities relative to the two programs. They still might be both in the gym two days per week, but they might just be making up a greater proportion of their training time in the road cyclist in that flex position compared to the track cyclist. So I think a lot of it comes down to just how they split up their training time and where they spend most of their time in that existing framework. So of course the answer to this, like, like everything as we've heard so far, is it depends on the athlete. What would be two or three uh, common relatively safe because we all there's always exceptions you know I, I i love the part in the complete uh hip and shoulder blueprint where you talk about the difference in the femoral neck angle is five to 20 degrees in four hips you know that mm -hmm. means between the three of us we have at least one and a half that's gonna have uh, a weird angle um yeah. so what would be two or three relatively safe ways uh that you would suggest for a road cyclist to help maintain that thoracic extension or to start to regain it if you will uh, the big one is that when you get off the bike, actually stretch. Like, don't skip the cool down. Do foam rolling work. Do some basic stretches, basic range of motion stuff. Don't be like, oh, I don't need to. I'm tired. Like, that, that's important stuff. And essentially, think of it like unwinding from the bike. So you have to actually take some time and get out of that position, restore some of that basic range of motion. It doesn't take a lot, but if you can do some thoracic extension work on the roller, maybe do just like some standing twist and holds for a few seconds, do some deep breathing drills, maybe go through a yoga routine, anything that would help to kind of unwind you from that static position that you were holding for so long under tension would be a good thing to go through. 
Do you have any favorite exercises that you seem like we all go through as coaches, we go through these cycles of, you know, anywhere from two weeks to three months of like, Oh, this is really good. Is there anything that's really hitting it for you right now? Well, with uh, any cyclist specifically, anything that involves rotation is great. So it's a good way to kind of hit the boxes of stuff they don't do on their own. So a hip cars or a shin box or a 90, 90 rotation, would be fantastic for shoulders. Doing any kind of like fist to fist behind the back would be able to accomplish a lot of shoulder stuff. Doing shoulder circles would be a great one that you could work on too. Um, prone prisoner rotations or using any thoracic rotation drill. Those are all great things to be able to include on a regular basis. And I know a bunch of the ones that you uh, just mentioned are in a number of your programs that you have online. Uh, where can folks find you on uh, YouTube and Instagram to see some of these exercises? Uh, if you go on Instagram, it's D Somerset one. I, I have another Instagram account, but I can't remember the password. So I haven't been able to get into it forever <laughs> uh, on YouTube. It's Dean Somerset. And, uh, if you go to my website, deansomerset.com, I know I'm really creative with my naming structure. It's literally just my name. That's it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've got all my content on that, those places. So it'd be a good way to go. Nice. And, and I strongly recommend you guys check out uh, one that I've been hitting on recently is the, uh, the complete core, I believe it is. Is that what the, the name is? I can't remember. Advanced core training. Yeah. Advanced core training. Thank you. It's been, you know, complete to trainer's toolbox, complete. Yeah. It's, it's too complete. So now it's advanced, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, which is another fantastic one. And I do use some of those tools. I always come back to them and it's always nice. It's well presented. Uh, so if any of you are the, out there are coaches or uh, riders looking to learn more, I strongly recommend investing. It really is an investment because it just keeps on giving, you know, it's kind of like Christmas year round, if you will. <laughs> um, Let's kind of move down to the spine, uh, down the spine to the hips. So we talked about commutation and nutation with uh, proper breath. That has a big impact on the SI joint and the pelvic positioning. Um, What are some things that that a cyclist is is looking at? And also a triathlete, I think. Let's start with the triathlete because they have to get off the bike and and go for a run, uh, which Lord knows why anybody came up with that. Like that's... I think worse would be putting the swim at the end, but they did that. Well, you'd probably die if you can't swim. Well, I always joke to say that if the swim was at the end, you could sell pay-per-view rights and it would be like live Baywatch. <laughs> People like coming out to the rescue. And if you did that during Shark Week, it would be even better, right? <laughs> You're a marketing madman, Dean. There you go. <laughs> I mean, X Games and Spartan races are all the rage. Let's do a reverse triathlon. You run, bike, swim. <laughs> and we'll add in a, a slalom kayak so you're actually going through you know the the swimmers that are actually surviving but you circle yeah. back and save the other ones <laughs> <laughs> exactly bonus points um so what would you say for for triathletes you know the, the hips and the pelvis are so important uh rotary stability uh what are a couple major considerations that the average triathlete should be thinking of as far as not just increasing performance, but allowing them to just live their lives pain-free for the next 20, 40, 60 years. Part of it comes down to understanding that one of the main goals for a lot of triathlons isn't necessarily to perform well, it's to see if you survive. So think about something like an Ironman triathlete. It wasn't meant for everyone to finish. It was meant to break you so that only the people who were unable to be broken would survive and finish and have a good time. But then there's also things like ultra endurance marathons and death races. And like there's races where people run across the Sahara desert. And yeah, those are cool events to be able to do, but remember their main purpose is to break you. So if you get out of it with only a couple of injuries, you're pretty lucky. 
if you're able to put your body through the amount of pounding that's required for something like the triathlon, even in a sprint distance or Olympic distance, eventually your body will break down. So just understand that, okay, you're going to get out of this only what you put into it. It may not be a contact injury like in football, but it is going to be an injury one way or another. What can you do to maintain it? Be very apparent as far as the accounting of what your programming volume and intensity is. That would be the best way to make sure that you're not getting beat up or put into any kind of an injury state. Don't try to increase your volume too suddenly. Don't try to increase your intensity too suddenly. Give yourself deload weeks. Take time off. If your coach says only do this many workouts, only do that many workouts. Don't start adding time. Don't start adding workouts. Don't start going for extra intervals. Don't start going for three-hour fun runs on top of the two-hour ones you just did. Uh, programming accounting is going to become incredibly important for managing and keeping yourself healthy away from potential overuse injuries. Outside of that, if you can do basic mobility through all your joints, that's about it. When stuff starts getting to the point where you start getting those overuse microtrauma symptoms, like soreness, achiness, increased resting heart rate, decreased range of motion, that's when you want to start addressing it. But again, it's going to depend on what stage of your training calendar you're in. If you're worried about maintaining range of motion before the Olympics, it's not going to happen. If you're worried about that before world championships or national championships, it's not going to happen. Put the performance out first and then pick up the pieces afterwards. So it sounds like a lot of focus on, on maintaining tissue quality and tissue integrity uh, because of the amount of pounding most triathletes go out and perform. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, you, you could obviously account to this. How many of your athletes will go through an entire season and have no injuries? Like from no blisters to no plantar fasciitis to no is knee issues, hip issues, shoulder issues, back issues, any of that kind of stuff. If you were to work with 100 triathletes at a competitive level, how many of them finished the season with zero injuries? Not 100. So there's going to be a definite rate of drop-off. Just based on the fact it's an extreme sport. If we were to put an entire football team out on the field, there's about 54 athletes depending on the team that you're looking at. Not all of them are going to finish the season without an injury. So when you work at competitive athletes, you have to understand that injuries will happen. How do you manage them and how do you bring them back into the field of play if possible? And, and that's such an important thing that most triathletes, I think, don't understand. You know, uh, HTFU was very prevalent a couple of years ago. It's still kind of the rage, you know, harden the F up, meaning just push through. Uh, and it's like, sure, go ahead. Here's, here's my and Dean's car. Give us a call because it is going to happen at some point. Um, yeah, and I mean, with some of the elites that I've worked with, they'll say, yeah, there's times to push through, but then you also have to be smart about when you push through. So in Edmonton, it just got above freezing the last week, and we've gone from being in minus 20 weather to now, well, we have minus 20 and about two or three feet of snow, so now we're above freezing and things are melting, but in the meantime, they're melting, freezing, melting, freezing. There's gravel all over the road, so cyclists are like, oh, get outside, HTFU. So now you have a whole bunch of cyclists who've been riding their trainer in their basement all winter, getting outside, getting exposed to the elements and riding on gravel for four hours. And none of them are used to four-hour rides. So they've gone from two-hour indoor trainer rides, which I could think of so many things I would rather do than ride my trainer inside for two hours, to riding outside for four hours. They've doubled their volume and in a different scenario, how many of those guys do you think are going to get overuse injuries in the next week? Right. Pretty much half of them at least just due to the fact that it's a giant jump that's unnecessary. Go outside, yeah, cool, go outside because the weather's improving. But don't try to push through something that you don't need to push through. What is this intelligent way of designing your training program to make sure you see progressive overload without destroying yourself the first chance you get at destroying yourself? 
Now, obviously, we have to take into account the specific specific stress that we're going to have on the tissues, but adding uh, strength training can certainly add some resiliency and give you a little bit more wiggle room if you're consistent with it uh, throughout your winter training. Because like you said, nobody likes to be stuck on the trainer for more than, you know, I don't know, five seconds. <laughs> it loses its zest pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, Zwift is becoming popular, and I think that's helping a lot of people spend time on their bike. But at the same time, it's not outdoor riding, and it's not the racing competing. So it's a mental battle there as much as anything. Yeah, and I've, I've always used it since day one. That was one of my secrets for the athletes in Pittsburgh is I had a compu trainer. I had the digital. This was way back when, uh, you know, way back when, you know, when uh, Jennifer Lopez was singing Waiting for Tonight uh, to date it. Uh, but really, well, it's a matter of... <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that was 99. You're right. Yeah. And Robbie Williams. Ah, so good. <laughs> 20 years, man. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you're older than you look. That's good to see. <laughs> I blame him. <laughs> um, but a lot of the cyclists are finally coming around to even with Zwift. Um, like we saw Zwift has paired with Sufferfest for some strength training. So yeah. decreasing your ride time on the trainer and adding 10 to 15 minutes consistently three to four days a week can really help with those tissue qualities. Uh, again, we need specific adaptation, but do you mind sharing a little bit about uh, how the tissues will adapt via strength training that can help improve your endurance performance? Well, there's a couple of major mechanisms to it. For one, it's almost like a form of cross-training from what you do on the bike. You're taking joints through a new range of motion, making them be exposed to a different type of stress than they used to, so therefore, there's a little bit of a cross-training effect from that. If you do it concurrently with cycling, your cycling performance goes up can be said the same for pretty much anything that you did. Uh, if you take a cyclist and put them through rock climbing, they're probably going to see a cycling performance change somehow in that, just based on the fact that it's a different stress, different physiological need, and different adaptation. You can make it fairly specific to cyclists by saying, okay, we're going to do squats, deadlifts, and cleans, which gives them more specific adaptation of what they're going through. Most of the adaptation they're going to see is going to be neural compared to any structural stuff. The tissues may become a bit more pliable. Um, you're not going to see massive hypertrophy unless the person is training like a bodybuilder and keeping the training on the bike to almost ne next to none because they're trying to focus on bodybuilding. But you're going to see most of the improvements coming in neural. You might see a little bit of strength gain in terms of muscle size or hypertrophy. Uh, joints seem to move better when you expose them to force over a range of motion that's different than what they would be put through on the bike. So a lot of the impact that you're going to see is going to be strength goes up, power output goes up, range of motion improves, and wattage to weight ratio improves as well because they're not seeing the specific hypertrophy. Now, I did have one, one guy this year who was just a really fast, uh, really quick adapter to weight training. He gained about 10 kilograms in the span of about four months. And yeah, he just got jacked as hell. And it wasn't fat because we did body comp testing on him throughout, but he just got jacked quickly and gained weight on all of his lifts out the gate. My wife saw him in uh, indoor cycling and one time she almost fell off her bike when he took his shirt off because she's like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> like, he's a, a junior guy, 22, 23 year old engineer student who all of a sudden just got jacked getting prepped up for a, a 1000 meter pursuit or 1000 meter time trial in uh, track cycling. He needed to have the mass to be able to get some power output and push those big gears. So if he's trying to run 128 gear, he's not going to be able to do that if he's only weighing 60 kilograms. He's not going to have a really fast start. So we had to put some mass on him. Mass equals gas. Let's get him up working. And that, ah, love that, man. That's, there's so much gold right there. <laughs> so here's a tough question for you. 
How do you, how would you sell that to a cyclist who's coming in and saying, well, I don't want to go up and wait by going to strength training. How would you help them to understand this isn't a bad thing? Mm -hmm. Well, part of it comes down to there's realistic fears with that. And depending on what sport they're doing, mass will be a detriment. So if they're doing a lot of hill climbing as a cyclist, more mass, even if you're putting out more power is a detriment. You want to be fairly light when you're doing a lot of hill climbing. If you're a track cyclist involved in flying 200, mass sprints, 1K, even up to 2K or 3K, mass will not be a detriment. It'll actually be a benefit. You look at a lot of track cyclists out there, the sprinters, they are very large human beings because it's not about weight to power ratio, it's about power. If you put out more power, you will go faster. You're not worried about the endurance element because your event's so short. If you're an athlete who's looking to do triathlon, mass obviously plays a big role because if you carry more mass, you have to run and you become less endurance-based. So a lot of it comes down to who is the athlete and what are you doing with them. Uh, if I'm training somebody who is a hill climber or triathlete, and I say, okay, well, we're not going to have you gain a lot of mass. What I want you to do is pay attention to what your diet is, pay attention to the scale, and then if need be, we can adjust your training program based on what's happening with those factors. If we're trying to make you gain mass because it's going to have an effect on your absolute power, we're going to still do the same thing. I want you to pay attention to your food. I want you to pay attention to the scale. Eat a Thanksgiving dinner every night because that's going to help you to gain mass, and we're going to see how the scale moves in that right direction. For most endurance athletes, it's going to come down again, weight to power output. So if somebody's weight starts going up and their power output goes up linearly to their body weight, their weight to power output ratio still went into a favorable direction. So if an athlete is getting stronger, outpacing their weight gain, great. They're still coming out ahead. They probably will, no matter what, gain a couple of pounds of mass by doing strength training. It's just a matter of is it functional mass that allows them to have an increased performance in their sport or is it just mass for the sake of mass and they're not seeing any improvements in their performance outcomes? I would venture to say that if they're just gaining mass and they didn't see any improvement in performance, it wasn't the right kind of mass to gain. So then we got to really look at their diet and say, you gained five pounds, zero of that was body muscle. What's going on with your diet? Let's start organizing that a little bit more. But if they gain five pounds of mass in an off season, odds are their performance outcomes are going to go through the roof. If I have a female athlete who gains five pounds, she is going to crush everything because females usually don't gain that much, especially endurance athletes. But if you can get a female athlete to gain five pounds of muscle or two and a half kilograms of muscle in an off season, her power output should outpace anything that she does on the bike, anything they do on the run. And it's probably going to injury proof a lot of their joints and tissues down the line too. And I have a, an example of just that right now for triathlete and also for cyclists as well. Uh, endurance road cyclist uh, put on about uh, one and a half kilo, almost two kilo in about three months of proper strength training. Posture got better. Uh, glutes were able to be activated. We also got their lats to relax a little bit, much better posture off the bike. And she was able to get super aero. I mean, and hold it because she no longer had the discomfort in her mid back. Uh, from adding muscle mass. And for her, it was both of them such a mind blow. You know, the triathlete was so focused on it. I'm at 130, 132 now. I'm supposed to be 120. Who said 129? Let's look yeah. at the track record. Every single year you've been at 129, you have had some type of injury. And now yeah. you're, you're running the fastest you ever have, the most resilient you ever have. You're bouncing back and asking for two days. But it's so lost on, on endurance athletes because there are a lot of people out there who are saying, oh, I'll do strength training for you. We're going we're gonna to do uh, three by five. You know, yeah. 
a bodybuilder. So let's get into that a little bit. You know, how can the listeners identify the difference between a bodybuilder style routine versus one that's more geared for performance in their sport? Honestly, there shouldn't really be a lot of difference between the two. The only real difference between the two would be if you're a strict cyclist, how much upper body work are you actually doing? There's probably not a lot that should be happening in there. Just because why? How many cyclists actually use their upper body when they're training? Now, you could make the argument that for a track cyclist, if they're getting hard starts and they're pulling the bike back and forth, they should have a little bit of pulse strength through their upper body. Great. That's where things like cleans and deadlifts come in. If you want, maybe throw in some hanging leg raises and maybe some chin But for the majority of it, you shouldn't be working on isolated work. It should be primarily compound strength with the occasional isolative warm-up, activation, cool-down, rehab, whatever you need to do. But for most of the time for cyclists, it's compound, relatively heavy strength. And depending on what stage of the season they're in, it might be heavy strength, it might be strength endurance, and it might be power endurance. Or it might just be strength maintenance if they're training in season. I know a lot of cyclists will go hard in the off-season, and then when it comes time to being in-season, they'll just go to the gym. Meanwhile, their strength starts decreasing every week that they're not spending in that gym. So all those gains that they saw while they were training before, and gains spelled with a Z for anybody wondering, uh, <laughs> those gains start going backwards. So at the beginning of their next off-season, they might see like a 2 or 3% increase of what their previous off-season was, but it's so far below what they ended the off-season at, it's like you're starting from zero. Yeah. So if you want to maintain strength, it really doesn't take much to maintain. Two sets of three, two sets of five, once or twice a week, you'll maintain strength pretty well. But if you do zero, you're going to decrease and decrease over time. Yeah, and I've been, I was waiting for that uh, research article that came out saying that if you remove strength training for cyclists or runners, the, within three weeks, I think they found the, the gains that you had pretty much fall off. It's the mm-hmm. same thing as riding your bike. You're not going to ride your bike all, all winter and then say, oh, well, you know what? Uh, I don't really feel like riding my bike. It's too hot, but my peak race is in July. So I'll just, I'll just show up. It'll be fine. Like you yeah. have, you know, the body, what, as Dan John says, whatever you do for the last two weeks, that's what you are. Um, yes. if, you're, if you're strength training. And I think it's easy for cyclists, bands, TRX, kettlebell, you know, find something. Maybe it's not sets of three or five. The max strength range stuff certainly helps because it's getting that intra and intermuscular coordination that you need. Um, mm-hmm. But if you don't have access because you're a traveling Euro pro, take some bands. You know, if the yeah. team will let you take a kettlebell, take a, an appropriately moderate weight and look at the volume you're lifting. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of where I'd like to go next, you mentioned volume a number of times. We heard that also from Dr. McGill. We heard that from Tony. Uh, let's get into volume a little bit and, and what you're looking for with your uh, cyclists. Let's, let's go with road cyclists for this one. Well, uh, are you talking about what their road mileage volume is or what their gym mileage volume what their, is? Their, their gym volume is as, as going through a season here. Depending on the athlete. I mean, if they're a hill climber or if they're a bunch racer or anything like that, it's going to be entirely different compared to if they're uh, a track cyclist or whatnot. So, I mean, if you're looking at somebody who the majority of their training is going to be on the bike, no matter what time of season it is, if we're able to get them in the gym three times a week in the off season and then once a week in season, maybe twice a week in season, great. But for the volume, it's going to phase depending on what phase of that training calendar they're in and also where they are in their off season. So I mentioned earlier that we usually go through a phase in the off-season where it's uh, introduction into strength training, max strength, strength endurance, and then power endurance. So the intro is just like, okay, well, let's get you under the bar and get a little bit of training stress on it. It won't be anywhere near max. It won't be anywhere near fatigue because it's a new stress. It's going to be enough for you right now. After a couple of weeks of that, then we go into max strength where we start saying, 
how much can we put on the bar while you still have one or two reps in the gas tank and then see how heavy we can get you while maintaining technique, maintaining positioning, getting the benefit out of it that we're looking for. Then we're gonna see how long we can take those weights into a set. So if I'm working somebody up and they can get up to like three reps at 150 kilos, and they're able to then take that up to four reps at 150 kilos, and then up to five reps at 150 kilos, all the time having one rep in reserve at the end of the day, great. Their weight, their weight, their strength endurance is increased because they're able to produce that power over time. And then we can get into power endurance phases where I'll use like a bar speed measurement or a bar velocity measurement tool. Uh, I use a bar sensei, but you could also use a push band, a tendo, anything like that. And we start working at a percentage of their maximum lift and seeing if they can maintain velocity of moving that weight for as long as they can maintain into that time frame. So let's say that I'm moving uh, uh, that 150 kilogram deadlift. Let's say I put it to 120 kilograms and say you have to move that bar at 0.6 meters per second. We can gauge what their power output is by load times velocity over distance. And then from there, if they can maintain velocity from five reps, and two months from now they're doing 10 reps, their power endurance is doubled in that time frame. So instead of working on max strength throughout that entire phase, we're working on it to build the numbers up a little bit and then saying, let's take that and now start working on an endurance phase through that. That's going to be more important to a cyclist at any level than just doing max strength training through the entire offseason. And with a lot of the cyclists that I'm working with, like especially the, the sprint track cyclists, they are destroying every test that they get put through on the bike by doing that power endurance phase of their weight training. So it's, it's almost comical to see the numbers that they're putting out. One guy went from 1,800 watts max sprint to 2,000 watts. And it's not like he's an untrained guy. So it's pretty cool to be able to see an over 10% improvement in max wattage. Other guys are putting out like on their FTP test, like a five to 10% improvement. Some guys are getting like 30% improvement and we're just like, what the hell is going on with this? Yeah. But it's just one of those little tweaks in how you're setting up the program and it makes a massive difference. Yeah, I, I love it. I, and I've, it's, I was going to ask you after we were done actually about what the number improvement, because I've seen it roughly around 12 to 17% FTP in the first two to three months. Once yeah. we get into the time under tension, uh, tempo lifts, like two, one, one kind of stuff. It's yeah. just like, whoop, and it's like, is it just me or is this happening for other coaches as well? Um, well, well, especially with uh, the power endurance stuff, because I can measure every rep that the person does in every workout, and then I've graphed them out over time. Some guys have been able to go from uh, an increase in their, their power output during those workouts by about 20 to 25%, and increase their endurance by over 300%. Fantastic. So they're moving more weight for three times as many reps, and it just translates over into the bike so fast and easy, and it's just amazing to see that. And the important thing for the listener here is this kind of harps on, uh, and, and Dean here mentioned having one to two reps in the gas tank still when they're done. Uh, as Dr. McGill mentioned, a lot of injuries that happen to cyclists that aren't contact happen in the weight room because they're moving heavy weights too much. I'm a huge proponent against 1RM testing in the first month to two months that you're in the gym. Uh, you know, maybe 5RM. Usually we don't even go there for the first uh, six to eight months, uh, six to eight weeks in my personal. And usually it's like a 10 RM because I want to know what their strength endurance is. You know, are they able to keep the speed of the bar up? Um, I personally don't use a Tendo. I don't have one. I don't have one facility I work out of. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're very sensitive. So if you drop them or bump them the wrong way, there goes a couple thousand bucks. Um, yeah, that's why I like stuff like a, a push band that you can actually mount to the bar and it costs just a couple hundred bucks versus a Tendo. Um, but on that point, talking about maxes, I don't max test any of my athletes because I don't need to. 
I mean, I'm able to show progress from one stuck point to the next. If I'm working with bar velocity, I'm not maxing them out. I'm giving them a threshold velocity that if they dip below, they could probably still grind out three to five more reps if they had to, but technique changes when they start grinding those reps out. So I completely agree with what you're saying. Like you don't have to max out a cyclist. Why? And also it increases the injury risk. So if I'm working with bar velocity, I'm avoiding a max. I'm avoiding technique breakdown. I'm getting them a threshold where it's like, okay, you stop at the point where the velocity doesn't maintain the power output and we're done. It makes it a way safer lift and they can still see the performance improvement. And this is something I really want the coaches out there to hear because I've seen numerous programs and, and he and I have spoken about this when I got him ready for his performance test. Like we don't really need a, a 1RM or a 3RM. It's more of where does your technique break down and when does bar speed drop? Like that's what we're really we're looking at. And again, it was just the coach's eye I was using with him, but it was very obvious even on the film. He's like, oh, that wasn't that good. Yeah. And I think what are your thoughts on the people at home using their, you know, we have these amazing things are called cell phones. Now they're smartphones. You can video. Do you have any favorite softwares that you'd recommend the athletes when they're distanced from you to record or just a normal uh, video recorder on their smartphone? Video recorder works great because it's free. And then if they send me videos of them doing a lift, I can break down what's going on with them. I can take a screen capture of a point in the lift and say, here, look at this, see what's happening here. And I can show them what's going on. If I wanted to draw on it, I can do that. But in terms of software, there's nothing really that beats a coach who knows how to look at what they're doing. So if you can do that, you're ahead of the game. For most cyclists, a one to two to 10 degree variance in position isn't going to break the world. If you're working with a very high caliber Olympic lifter or power lifter, yeah, okay, I can understand that if you get the weight shift a little bit forward on that athlete who's got 600 pounds on their back, it may mean the difference between them missing the lift or not missing the lift. If you get somebody who has the bar path track a little bit anteriorly when they're trying to do a catch, yeah, it'll make a difference. For a cyclist, are they training near one rep max intensity? Probably shouldn't be. Or maybe we can find better ways of going about it. Yeah, uh, huge, huge. I'm, I'm 100% on your bandwagon, man. And, and it's good to hear other coaches are doing this because it still seems that the coaches, the old guard, as I'll call them, and that's not to an offense to anybody. It's just there's so much research been done, especially the last half decade. And most fitness professionals are still stuck in the early 2000s. It seems like a lot of cycling coaches who are getting into strength are back in the 1980s, where it's very much a high load or they're doing leg press and hamstring curls and squats, and they're not doing the different exercises that are uh, challenging what the cycling position is. And I'd like to kind of use that to, to pivot into the hips and mm -hmm. balancing the hips because we do know there are a lot of anatomical adaptations that can occur femoral acetabular impingement a number of, of various things what are some things that you look at for during your assessment uh, that maybe the listeners at home should be aware of or they can easily test themselves to help them understand their hips and, and what they can do to keep them healthy well it would be tough to test an impingement position on yourself um, but that's one of the first things I would look for. If I put your hip into a specific range of motion, does it hurt? Does it create a pinching sensation? And if so, then I'm referring you out to just get it checked up to see, is it a, a tissue thing? Is it a bone on bone thing? What's going on with that? Because if it is something that's going to be impacting a cycling performance or a cycling position, I want to get that checked out first. If the person has no pain or problems through any range of motion, great. We're off to the races. But for a lot of the time, it's going to be the stuff like, what do you feel working when you do hard intervals? Do you feel like it's your quads, your hamstrings, your glutes? Do you feel like it's everything? If you feel everything is working all the time, great. 
that's kind of the best scenario, right? If you only feel like your quads are ever doing all of the work and you never feel anything in your hamstrings or glutes, maybe it's a bike positioning setup. Maybe you just have weak hamstrings and glutes and your quads are doing all the work. So then we can start dr drilling down and say, where can we get better benefits so you can get more power out of the work? If I get you doing basic hip extensions and all of a sudden your FTP goes up, guess what we're going to do a lot more? Way more glute dominant type stuff because it had a direct carryover to your performance on the bike. Yeah. So, I mean, the two easy rules that you should follow in the gym, one, don't break the client or the athlete in the gym, let them do that in their sport. And two, improve their testing qualitative outcomes of whatever their sport is. If you do that, you're a great coach. You know, don't hurt the client in the gym and make them better at their sport. Seems like a pretty simple thing to do, right? But Dean, there's so much more I want to do. I want to show that I'm special and different. Yeah, I mean, we had one guy, young guy that I was working with who one RM tested his squat and deadlift every time he set foot in the gym. And I was just like, okay, tell you what, follow what I do or follow what I tell you to do. And then after like three or four months, do your testing again, whatever you want to do. So he's like, oh, okay. But he was still like, I want to test, I want to test, I want to see how much I can lift. I was like, three months, that's all I asked. And as soon as he started finishing his three months and he's like, okay, I can test now. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. He goes in and throws like another 50 pounds on the bar because he was stalled because all he was doing was testing strength. He wasn't training strength. Right. So as soon as I got him to train strength, his strength went up. If all he's doing is testing it all the time, he's not improving. The testing should be a window to see what's happening. It shouldn't be the focus of your program. And that's something that cyclists love to do out on the bike as well. And that's where Strava was the bane of, I think, every good coach's existence back in the day. Like, look at the KOM I got by 35 seconds. Like, that's your peak race a week from now. And then what, where'd my performance go? If, if you're testing constantly, you're not getting these small dosages of submaximal work that allow you to actually create that allostasis or that, that disruption to the organism where you're actually going to adapt to it because you're just putting max, max, max. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, when you're training someone and they're coming in, the average cyclist, let's say age grouper, age 38, 39, um, they're not particularly good at anything. They're just getting into training. They've been riding their bike for two years. Do you have like a, a standard hip series or, or a basic series of exercises that you would start them with to help address the common imbalances that they may have uh, adapted to? Um, no, just because everyone's a bit different. So if I have somebody who has good hip range of motion and has good active mobility, why would I give them a mobility drill? They're already there. Do I need to unlock what's already unlocked? No. So let's get them doing different stuff. I'll get them to learn how to do basic stuff like how to brace, how to breathe, how to create tension, how to create and hold tension through a range of motion, and then we train it. So if they can create tension and use a range of motion that's acceptable for what we want for a loaded exercise, now let's squat and deadlift and clean. Let's get into the heavy compounds. If they're inhibited or restricted from doing that in any way, there's regressions that I can throw at them to help them to get back to basics and learn how to access the stuff that's necessary to do those compound lifts. But the goal is always to get them into a training environment where they can get a loaded adaptation to what they're trying to do. I don't want to put somebody in rehab purgatory because why? If I have a client working on a hip mobility drill for three months and their hip mobility doesn't improve, we're either at their physiological limit or the drill was a bad drill. So let's do something different. If they're at their physiological limit, I'll put them into a range of motion that they can manage, load them up with intolerance, maintain technique, and then see if we can create a training response. But like I was saying earlier with the two athletes that were side by side, one can drop to the floor, the other is stuck at 90 degrees. 
I'm not going to force a powerlifting depth squat on a kid who's a cyclist. Because why? I'm not trying to make him a powerlifter. I'm trying to get him to have an adaptation to a physiological stress. If he gets that adaptation at 90 degrees, great. If he gets it at parallel, great. But if he's getting stronger, if he's getting stronger and he's not in pain, I'm winning. So he's going to become a better athlete overall just due to the fact that he's not getting injured at the gym and his numbers are getting better. So let, let's kind of dig into that because there are a number of cyclists and triathletes and I'm, I would venture to guess you as well that have, have sought me out uh, or another coach out because they are in pain because they're like, oh, I have to squat to below parallel because I have to deadlift off the ground. That's when I, 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 it's a bane to my existence, just like crappy executed bird dogs. Like it's a spine sparing exercise, not a, not a accordion. You know, what would you say to the average listener out there who's like, no, but I, I have to squat to parallel. I have to bring the bar all the way to my chest for bench press and, and I get a really tight stretch. You know, what would your words be to them? Why is that important to you? And I don't want to drill into their beliefs and figure out what their belief system is that's telling them that that's important. If they're saying, well, if I don't do it that way, then the internet's going to judge me and I can't put my lift up on Instagram without people commenting negatively. Okay, cool. That's understandable. So what do we do about that? Well, we just don't put that lift on Instagram or you preface it by saying, I'm not a power lifter. My hips don't move like a power lifter. I'm a cyclist. I'm using this for cycling. I'll put my gold medal up when I win the race. If they don't want to deadlift from the floor because they can't, cool, trap bar with a high handle. That's probably going to be better for you as a cyclist no matter what you do because it's a more advantageous position overall and it's easier to get into, easier to teach, and puts you under less stress. Why is a cyclist doing bench press anyway? Like, why do you have to bench press if you're a cyclist or if you're a triathlete? How often are you pushing other people away from you or doing any push-ups while you're doing your swimming? It's probably not the right thing that you need to be doing. If you want to bench press, cool, bench press is great. But maybe we can get away with doing other things like a dumbbell press or a push-up or a one-arm cable press. Is a bench press important to you because you want to be one of those freak athletes who's a triathlete slash powerlifter? Cool, go for it. But understand why that individual wants to do that exercise that specific way first and then break into their belief system and say, okay, well, now that I understand why that's important to you, I can approach it in a better way. I've had clients who are like, well, I need to squat deep because if I don't squat deep, my glutes won't get stimulated and they're not going to grow and I'm not going to look good. Okay, now I have an understanding as far as why you want to do that. So instead of you squatting deep, how about if we go through a couple of other exercises that are actually better at glute engagement and safer for you to go through so you can get the benefit you're looking for? Great, yeah, let's do that. So I diffuse the problem without actually creating a new problem and I address their specific reasoning first. So understanding why the person needs to do an exercise a certain way is way more important than having a rational reason for why they need to do something different. And that's something a lot of coaches, I think, miss. And that's the intelligent coach. You know, uh, what's his name? I think Brett Bartholomew made a program about that. It's just listen. We have two ears and one mouth. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. Why? You know, yeah. why? Exactly. You know, I, I'm a big proponent of, of bench press. I think that the fundamental five push, pull, squat, hinge, press, rotary stability are, are important. But, you know, bench press will be like two sets of eight just to keep that, you know, floss that movement because they are in such a shortened position uh, rowing. But it, it's all kind of built on a foundation of the hips and rotary stability. And I kind of like to bring us towards that for the end of, of the uh, podcast for today. Now, let's talk a little bit about the importance of rotary stability and, and producing power from the hips and how those two tie together. 
Yep. Easiest way you can tell is ask a runner, what do they feel getting tired on them after they run? If they say it's the quads, then they're not using the glutes. If they say it's the glutes, then they're using the glutes. How does a runner run if their quads are really tight and sore at the end of the time? Well, they're probably stooped forward and they probably have a hard heel strike and their knees are flexed as they hit that ground. So they're using a knee extension, eccentric contraction to control their run strike. So essentially they're falling forward all the time and their quads are working to keep them from completely collapsing. If that's the case and they're not producing any kind of power out the back, are they a fast runner? No. And if you've worked with amateur runners before, 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, my quads get sore when I run because they're amateurs. You work with any elite athlete, a runner, and they'll say, my glutes, my hamstrings, my lower back get tight. Why? Because that's their power stroke. And they're probably fast because they're using their power stroke. So if you're using your glutes on your kickback, when you get good hip extension, another function of the glutes is external rotation. You'll see the foot kind of tick out to the side and rotate back through if they're a strong runner who's getting really good glute activation. If they have knee valgus, toe in, pronation, all that kind of funky stuff, the glutes probably aren't doing what they're supposed to. So that's the easiest way to tell whether or not a runner is good or not at what they do. Do you feel like your quads are sore? Do you feel like your glutes are sore at the end of a really hard one? So in terms of rotary stability, the glutes and a lot of the hip musculature are your power source. If they're not working, then you have wonky pelvis mechanics. You got a Trendelenburg syndrome happening. You're using your quads more than your glutes. You're working on more eccentric control versus concentric power. So it just comes down to how are you actually running and how are you actually cycling. When you go into really hard intervals on your bike, what tends to get fatigued out? Probably your glutes. They're important. They're a power center for a reason. When you're swimming, if your glutes aren't flexed, you're going to have your toes dragged into the water, which means that you're going to become as aerodynamic as a kite in the water, which isn't really all that great to see because you actually have to move. You want to be like a fish, so you want to be that straight line. And if your glutes aren't working to keep your feet up, then you're just going to be an anchor sinking to the bottom. Let, let's get into the, the glute meat a little bit. That's kind of been an area I've been deep diving recently. Uh, it's kind of like the rotator cuff of the hip where it kind of pulls that ahead of the femur back and into acetabulum. Uh, a lot of people have really gone, I think, and done the clams to death. I think that for cyclists, it can be a good starter because it's a familiar position. So they can really feel when some muscles are taking over. Um, do you have any particular favorites as far as glute mead uh, exercises or, or things that you found really work well for cyclists that are very quad and TFL dominant? Not specific for glute mead because I, I find a lot of the time the glute mead will work in conjunction as a synergist with a lot of other muscles. So trying to isolate the glute mead is kind of a, an exercise in futility on its own. If you can get the glute mead to fire, you should be getting the glute max to fire. So any glute max, glute mead exercise is going to be a good one to be able to build up. I've never met somebody who has a weak glute mead who also has a really powerful glute max. So the glutes operate as a complex. So let's get the glutes to actually operate as a complex. Most of the time, if I get a client doing hip thrusts, band walks, deadlifts, squats, we'll change the position of the foot around when they do that. Single leg deadlifts work really well. Uh, any of those kind of things will work to train. But usually a well-designed, uh, varied training program with a lot of different hip-based movements will accomplish the job you're looking for. A lot of the isolative work, I'm not a huge fan of just because it's so restricted as far as its utilization. Now, if I do have a client who's uh, in rehab because they can't run or they can't cycle because they have issues with activation during that, those work really good as like, let's get you started on something, get you building up your strength, and then we can progressively build on top of that. 
to be able to work on getting some endurance and fatigue without beating up other tissues. Great stuff for that. But in terms of building strength, I'm not a huge fan of the isolative element building compound strength because it just doesn't work. Well, let, let's kind of wrap up with that and, and one or two other uh, points that you, you think are very important for cyclists and endurance athletes uh, to hear about strength training and just balancing their training overall so they can go out and continue doing what they do. What would be one or two points or, or diamonds that you'd like to give the listeners? Um, one of the biggest ones is that there is nothing that will replace compound strength. doesn't matter the tool. doesn't matter the training strategy. doesn't matter who the person is that says it. Get good at basic compound strength. You don't have to become world-class powerlifter or anything like that, but just know how to hold a bar on your back or on your chest, grab a bar and lift it up off the floor. That's stuff that you can take with you anywhere you go. And everywhere you go, if you're traveling through Europe, Australia, Asia, you should be able to find a gym somewhere because they're now becoming ubiquitous on populations and be able to go find a barbell that you can lift. If you don't want to do that because you don't want to get bulky, cool. You won't get bulky, but still do it. If you don't want to be sore from doing your workouts, then just manage your volume and make sure that it's in place with what your workout training calendar is and what you're trying to get out of that. And then make sure that you're working on training to strength, not training to failure. You should always have one or two reps in the tank and be able to build on that. A lot of the circus type training that you might see, like standing on one foot, rotating, throwing stuff and doing all that, has a place in the training program, but should never replace compound strength. It should always be in addition if you have the time to get through it. From there, if you can maintain mobility of your joints and train hard and healthy, you're going to have a long career without any problems. But don't sacrifice training for joint health. Otherwise, you can have big problems down the line. Dean, uh, as always, amazing stuff. Uh, you have one copy at least sold for the complete hip and shoulder blueprint, the second edition here. Uh, and the complete trainer's toolbox is coming up on my CEU courses. I'm very excited for both of those. Um, where can folks find you upcoming in, in the next couple of months here in, in May, June, July? I think you're in, in Australia in May. Is that right? Or September? Uh, we'll be in Australia in July. We're going to be hitting up Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, if you want to come to Edmonton in May, I can about 70% assure you that it won't be freezing at that point. Uh, but only 70% will be in uh, Edmonton in May. We're going to Philadelphia in April. And then uh, potentially we've got a bunch of dates set up for 2020, but we just want to finalize those. Excellent. And uh, the folks can find you on Instagram, Dean, D Somerset one is that right? Yep. And then uh, Facebook is Dean Somerset and deansomerset.com. That's correct. Awesome. Uh, Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, as always, tons of great information and uh, looking forward to seeing your riders out there on the top uh, step. Well, not if they're competing against mine. We'll, we'll split that. <laughs> Half well, we, can, uh, we can Rochambeau over who gets the top of the podium, right? I'll go that's, first. That's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HV Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.